0: It was like an inch at the top. Gertie is 93 years old.
1: There's a mask that I have for
2: Halloween that's the Cyclops. It's time for the Appleseed, where great stories can change your family's world. On each episode of the show, we bring you all kinds of great stories, many told by terrific storytellers right here in the Appleseed studio. Sometimes they're audio dramas produced in what we have sometimes called the Appleseed Secret Lab. And uh, we've got some things for you today that are memories of ours, uh, some of our favorite moments from season two. We've invited our producers, Brian Tanner and Heather Bigley, to share share some of the things that they loved working on in the last season. We're doing it because we're remembering season two with some fondness as we prepare in just a couple of weeks to take a brief hiatus to get season three of the Appleseed already. We can't wait to share with you some of the things that we're preparing there. In the meantime, today we've invited Heather to share some of her season two favorites. Heather and Brian, welcome. Thanks for joining me.
3: Hello, Sam. Hey,
2: Sam. And Heather, what do we got today?
3: Uh, Well, I feel like I feel like we had to listen to a Bill Lep story.
4: Yeah. (laughs) How can you not?
3: I know. Having met Bill Lep this year, uh, it was just like great to put a face to that voice. That's um, right. You had heard a lot of Bill Lep stories. I'd heard a lot of Bill Lep stories, yeah. Long
2: before he made his season three visit to the studio,
4: right?
3: Yeah, and this story is Vacation Bible School from our episode eight. And what I love about the story is how tightly it comes together. Mm -hmm. All of this was planned out from the beginning. Yeah. What an excellent story. So, let's jump in.
2: <laughs> Vacation Bible School is the name of the story recorded live here in the Applebee's Studio. Here's the wonderful West Virginia tall tale teller, Bill Lep.
5: Thank you. I, I grew up in a little town called Half Dollar, West Virginia. And uh, when I say little town, we had two streets. One was called Main Street. And the other one, I'm pretty sure, was called Nah that ain't Main Street. (laughs) And we had sort of your variety pack of Baptist churches and then a Methodist church, and our parents told us that there were some Catholics that lived over the hill, but we didn't know if that was true, or (laughs) that was just something they told us so we'd go to bed at night. But my buddy Skeeter and I loved the Half Dollar Baptist Church. Now, when I say we loved the Baptist Church, I mean Baptist with a little b, because we were Methodists. What we loved was the building that was the Baptist Church, because the attic was infested with bats. And on a spring evening, a summer evening, a fall evening, you could go and sit behind the church and just watch thousands and thousands of bats flying out of the eaves, flying out of the steeples. It was a beautiful sight to see. So, Skeeter and I were very excited when it was announced that because they were doing renovations at the Methodist Church that we would be having a joint vacation Bible school at the Baptist Church, and we were excited for several reasons. One, we had lots of Baptist friends, but it was difficult to tell the Baptist children from the Methodist children on the playground because we all knew the same bad words. So we're excited to have the opportunity to see the Baptist children being Baptist in their natural Baptist habitat. On top of that, we had never been in the Baptist church, but we understood that in the Baptist church they had a baptismal, like a big bathtub where they did the baptisms. Now, when you're a Methodist, when you get baptized, it, you usually get baptized as an infant, and you just get a little bit of water sprinkled on your head. But the Baptists get the full board dunkin'. And I asked my dad why that was, and he said that's because Methodists just have dirty minds. <laughs> but the Baptists are dirty all over. And then... Again in the Methodist church you generally get in, uh, baptized as an infant there's no rebaptism in the in the Methodist church but we understood that there were baptists who got baptized like once a week. So, we were excited to have the opportunity to see that. So, we got to the Baptist Church on the first day and the little old ladies that were running the Vacation Bible School put the girls on one put the girls on this side of the sanctuary and the boys on this side of the sanctuary and we sang some hymns and there was a devotional and then it came time to give the offering. But instead of <coughs> passing the plates in the traditional fashion, what happened was the boys got against this wall, the girls got against this wall, and we progressed forward. And someone had built in front of the altar an offering-giving device, the likes of which I had never seen before, and I have never seen since. It was a two-by-four standing upright about three feet tall. And bolted loosely, perpendicularly across the top of that was another two-by-four. And on this side, tied on by binders twine, was a coffee can painted pink. And on this side, tied on by binders twine, was a coffee can painted blue. And the boys put their money in the blue can, and the girls put their money in the pink can, and whichever side went down, that gender won the offering. Yeah, that should make you a little uncomfortable. There's a lot wrong with that. And it's not even all theological. I mean, part of the problem is that the weight of American money has very little to do with the value of American money. A nickel is twice the size of a dime, but it's only worth half as much. And 10 pennies weighs more than a $100 bill. Now, my buddy Skeeter and I knew that firsthand because that winter there'd been a blizzard and we decided to go out and shovel some snow to make a little extra money. Now, I am the last of five children. which means I did not own a new article of clothing until I was 27 years old. And the worst part about that was that my two closest siblings were my sisters. So I would say to my mother, I don't want to wear girl's pants, I don't want to wear a girl's shirt. And my mother would say there's no such thing as girl's pants, there's no such thing as a girl's shirt. And I would say then how come my shirt sticks out right here? And she would say be quiet, there are children in Biafra and so I was born after the inventions of rubber and wool but before the inventions of Thinsulate and Gore-Tex so my winter rain boot or my winter boots were essentially thin rubber rain boots with metal clasps so that you could tighten them and they were one size fits all. (laughs) Which means my oldest brother. So by the time they got to me, they had four siblings worth of holes worn through the soles and burned through the uppers. So to render them winterproof, my mother would sit me down, put two wool socks on each foot, and then she would take space age, state of the art, Arctic rated, Wonder Bread bags. <laughs> She had put two Wonder Bread bags on each foot, then take a rubber band, work it up my thigh, or up my calf, and slap it shut, so that within 15 minutes, my feet were numb. And I didn't know if it was frostbite or lack of circulation. But because my boots were too big for me, and my feet were encased in plastic, walking was quite a process, because I would lift my foot, but it would take two or three seconds for my foot to fully engage the boot. And then, I would lift the boot, put it back on the ground, and then it would take another two or three seconds for my foot to fully re-engage the boot. So thusly clad, Skeeter and I headed out. Now again, this was the 1970s, and I was what my buddy Andy calls the last of the bicycle generation, which means that shortly after breakfast on a summer day or a Saturday, your parents would say to you, go away. And you could go anywhere in the world on your bicycle so long as you were home for supper. Uh, if you wanted to go shoot pool in a smoky blues hall in Las Vegas, nobody cared. Long as you were home for supper. So my mother would say, go away. And I'd be like, okay, but can I have a box of matches and a stick of dynamite? And she would say, be careful. Remember what happened to Dan Carlisle." So... My mother was like, goodbye, boys, go. Knock on strangers' doors. If they invite you in, by all means, enter their houses. If they offer you food and drink, say please and thank you. See you when you get home. Or not. (laughs) You're the last of five. It might take a while for us to notice. So we headed out. And this went immediately from not just an exercise and occupation but also sort of a sociology experiment because we would knock on a door and if the man of the house opened the door, we would say, can we shovel your driveway? And he would say, how much? And we would say five bucks and he would say, have at it. But if the woman of the house opened the door, we would say, can we shovel your driveway? And she would say, oh, no, my husband is going to do that. (laughs) And she would shut the door and we would walk away. And we'd get about 30 seconds down the road and the door would open and there would be the man of the house saying, boys, 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 come back, come back. So we learned that if the woman shut the door, we would just stay on the stoop. And 30 seconds later, the door would open and there would be the man of the house. But he wouldn't see us because we were only this tall and he was looking down the street. And when he couldn't locate us, we would learn a new word. And then we would make some sort of movement and that would startle him. (laughs) And we would learn another new word. (laughs) So by the end of the day, we each probably had $25, $30 cash money in our pockets. And the last house we did was a little old lady. And when we were done, she invited us in and she gave us cookies and cocoa. And then she paid us each $5, but she paid us in pennies and we had to sit there and count out 500 pennies apiece. And the only vessel I had large enough to carry 500 pennies was a Wonder Bread bag. (laughs) And in case you're curious, about a third of a mile is how far you can get with 500 pennies in a Wonder Bread bag (laughs) before the Wonder Bread bag just gives up. So, all of that to say, Skeeter and I were well aware that the weight of American money has very little to do with the value of American money. So back to the Vacation Bible School. What Skeeter and I wanted to do most was to get in the baptismal. And I don't know why, except that we were seven and it seemed like the right thing to do. (laughs) So anytime the sanctuary was empty, anytime we could sneak away from class, we would go, and first we would just look. I don't know what we thought we'd see. I guess we thought we'd see Baptist sin, just sort of swimming around. <laughs> like evil coy, like, oh, there goes greed, there goes avarice. And then we'd be just about to get in and the Baptist pastor would materialize behind us. Now, he was this gruff old guy. I say he was old, but now I realize he was probably 30. And- <laughs> We didn't go to that church, but it was a small town, so, you know, we knew who he was. And he had this wonderful attitude. He really didn't care whether or not you agreed with him because he knew that he was right. (laughs) And that you would either one day come to see things his way or you would, you know, suffer in the fires forever. (laughs) And he really didn't care which way you went because, you know, he just knew he was right. And so... We would be just about to get in the baptismal, and he would appear behind us, and he would say, boys, 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 I know you want to get in there, but that's not a toy. And when a man does things purely for his own enjoyment and not for the benefit of others or the glory of God, he will be stained and tainted that others may know. Yeah. (laughs) We thought that was good stuff. Uh, It didn't... It didn't make us not want to get in the baptismal, but there was no denying it was good stuff. And that pastor hated the way we were doing the the offering, but any pastor worth his or her salt knows that there's only so many battles you can win. And taking on the little old ladies that run the vacation Bible school is not a wise career move. So he wouldn't tell them to quit doing the offering that way. But by Thursday, he couldn't stand it anymore. And when it came time for the devotional, he got up to do the devotional. And he didn't read a plithy little poem. No, he got up in the pulpit, and he gave a full-bore sermon. And he started by telling us the story of where Jesus is in the temple with the disciples, and they're watching the people give the offering. And the rich guys are throwing in tons and tons of cash. And then the little old lady comes up, and she puts in her two mites or her two pennies. And Jesus turns to the disciples. And he says to the disciples, who gave the greatest offering? And one of the disciples, probably like Mark, he's like, hey, he's talking. Give me the red pencil. And then <laughs> Jesus says, Who gave the greater offering? And then one of the disciples give one of those answers that make me think that the reason Jesus chose those 12 guys is because he knew that they were morons. <laughs> and before you get self-righteous or offended, he knew that they were morons, and he could ask them things that you and I needed to know the answer to, and they would say the first thing that popped into their head, and then Jesus could explain the correct answer, and you and I would know the correct answer without ever having to open our mouths. He was already looking out for you. so. Jesus said, who gave the greater offering? And one of the disciples said, clearly the rich men gave the greater offering. And Jesus said, no, the rich men gave from their abundance while the little old lady gave from her poverty. And then Jesus, or the pastor explains that what that means is when you give an offering, you're supposed to put yourself in a place where you become dependent upon God. The word abundance means more than you need. So if you're giving out of your abundance, you, you haven't really given anything at all. But the little old lady gave everything she had, therefore she became completely completely dependent upon God, thus she had given the greater offering. Now, just parenthetically, two things. One, that is in no way a prosperity verse. And two, on behalf of any church treasurers listening, uh, if you are giving out of your abundance, don't quit. Uh, (laughs) It's not doing you any good, but the rest of us are benefiting. So, he, he said that the rich men gave from their perfidy. We didn't know what it meant either. But it seemed like a weird place to keep your money. And then he told us that if we continued to give in this perfidious way, that the demons of hell would descend upon us, snatch our souls, and drag them down to the sulfuric pits. And we were like, yeah! Right, because we were Methodists, and Methodists, We don't have demons of hell. We have covered dish dinners. So we were moved. But again, not in the direction that the pastor had intended. It just caused Skeeter and I to remember the 1,000 pennies the little old lady had given us earlier that year. So we went home that night and we collected every penny in both of our houses. And we didn't put them in a Wonder Bread bag either. We got an old wool hunting sock. We probably had five inches in diameter, maybe 18 inches of pennies. And I'm talking pre-1983 pennies, 174 pennies to the pound. And the next morning, when we went to church, when we got to church, Skeeter held those pennies behind his back. You're probably familiar with the idea that even the observation of an experiment can change the outcome of the experiment. Well, the same is certainly true for a prank at church. The... Observation of the prank can greatly change the consequences. And so, when it came time to give the offering, Skeeter got last in line, and he held those pennies between his back and the wall, and he made his way slowly forward. And when it was finally his turn, uh, he did not gently introduce the pennies into the blue can. He held that tube of pennies about 10 inches above the blue can, and he just dropped it. And when those pennies hit that side of the scale, that side of the scale dropped dramatically causing the other side of the scale to rise precipitously. And when the blue can hit the ground, it stopped, and the scale stopped, but the pink can didn't. It kept going. And when it got to the end of the binder's twine, binding it to the 2x4, the binder's twine just ripped. And every eye in that sanctuary watched that pink can flying through the church. And it hit the ceiling. And when it hit the ceiling, it didn't stop. It punched a hole right through the ceiling and everyone was staring at that hole. And then the demons of hell started to pour forth thousands and thousands of bats just roiling. Roiling out of the ceiling. Everyone ran for their lives. Everyone ran for the exits, clutching their souls tightly to their chests. Everyone but Skeeter and myself, because we knew this was our moment. (laughs) And we ran straight for the baptismal. And we didn't stop to look. We just put our hands on the side and we vaulted over the edge of the baptismal. And when we had gone just far enough that we could no longer halt our forward progression, when we were now nothing but slaves to Newton's first law, body in motion tends to stay in motion, which is very similar to Skeeter's first law, which is a body being chased by the law tends to stay in motion. But when all we could do is fly a little further forward and fall, we looked down and we saw that someone, some unknown person, had dyed the water red. (laughs) And a few minutes later, when we joined the rest of the kids on the front lawn of the church, we were limping and dripping and dyed pink. We heard a voice behind us that said, boys, 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 when a man does things purely for his own enjoyment and not for the benefit of others or the glory of God, He will be stained (laughs) and tainted that others may know. Thank you very much.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Vacation Bible School, a story told for us by the West Virginia tall tale teller Bill Lepp, recorded live right here in the Appleseed Studio. Brian and Heather and I are going to chat about that story in just a moment. I'm Sam Payne you mm-hmm. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on this episode of The Appleseed, where we're looking back on some of our favorite moments, our favorite Appleseed moments from the last little while. And we just heard a story called Vacation Bible School, recorded in a terrific visit from Bill Lep to the Appleseed studio. Bill Lep, the terrific West Virginia tall tale teller. Heather, thanks for bringing that story to us.
3: I love this story. I mean, the story stands on its own as like an excellent example of craft. All these things that come come together at the end yeah. that the payoffs <laughs> that just yeah. come and come and come uh it, it, fantastic but also, I went to vacation Bible school, right? So I grew up going to vacation Bible school, um, and uh, my grandmother was always making sure that we were attending. She was so scared we would become heathens, and um, <laughs> and we did. But uh, just like w- this nostalgia for me was really, really important. Um, but as an adult, looking back and thinking, these kids. Kids are rascals, but everyone around them is trying to create an experience, uh, even if it's not done very well, um, where they learn how to be better people. Um, And so, yeah, to me, I just – I I remembered it as a child, but I thought about it a lot as an adult. Uh All the effort that adults put into making sure kids – have places and spaces where they learn and grow. So. Yeah,
2: it happens everywhere, right? But yeah. in, in in my life, as in your life, it happened a lot in church, as right. I, you know, where there would be youth camps and there would be you know summer projects and there would be things like that. And I I remember sitting on the porch making music with a bunch of musical friends, and uh, a couple teenagers approaching us and uh, uh, walking off the street up onto the porch and announcing themselves as being on a mission trip. They all lived. 2000 miles away and oh, wow. had come on a mission trip to my town to essentially plug a revival that they were having mm. and I the 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 courage that it took them to have that conversation right? right the courage that it took for them to have that conversation the great interaction that we had i just it it brought to mind these kinds of experiences, you know, some of which, as Bill Lepp points out, are, 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 uh, mostly comical, <laughs> right? Yes. But also the, that, that growing up that we do in these, I, I, in those environments under those circumstances. Right. You
3: know? And I mean, you know, as an adult, I, I don't like having children point out to me how I didn't think something through, uh, <laughs> which yeah. is sort of where a lot of the comedy here is. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh. Yeah, I, you know, when I step away, I'm like, yeah, well, they're just as involved and they're trying to make it work for themselves (laughs) like we're trying to make it work for them. Right.
4: Now, Heather, I'm so glad that you picked this one because my my kids get exposed to these stories because I listen to them dozens of times as we're preparing (laughs) for episodes, you know, while we're driving around town and stuff and I bet this would probably be top of their list for the whole season. Yeah. They, we would get done with it, the bats flying out, <laughs> and they'd be like, play it again, play it again. You know, so I, I'm really glad that you brought this one back. <laughs> and, of course, it's not the only one that Heather has brought back for today. Heather, tell us what else you've got.
3: Well, we have another East Coast story, this one from Belfast, Maine, uh, concerning waterfall arts. Uh, Sam, you got to interview Amy Tingle. I did, yeah. Um, and... This story, I think, is just beautiful uh, about a community coming together in a very difficult time. And uh, it's, sort of, it's sort of a model for what we all could be doing yeah. is listening to stories from each other. So
2: We talked about uh, a, a tradition that had grown up in this community, a tradition of fireside chats. Here's the story. I'd like to introduce you to someone.
6: My name is Amy Tingle. I'm the program director at Waterfall Arts in Belfast, Maine.
2: Waterfall Arts in Belfast, Maine, is a community arts center. It's housed now in a beautiful old building, but it didn't always have a brick and mortar home. Before Amy's time, the art created by the Waterfall Arts community demonstrated that making art didn't have to depend on having a building to put it in.
6: It's a really interesting space that started out in the woods on a piece of land that was called the kingdom. And as far as I understand, it's sort of this communal space where artists came and made art and installed art in the woods and put on performances and all kinds of wild things used to happen out there. Um, And then they bought this building in. It's close to the downtown area of Belfast, so that shaped things a little bit differently.
2: The artists in the Waterfall Arts community liked sharing and creating art so much that they shared and created it even out in the woods before they had a building in which to gather. And that part of the story is really about how dedicated that community is to the kind of things that art can do for people.
6: Exactly, it's still really about curiosity and discovery. It's about process more than product. So, you know, what can you, what can you learn about yourself, about the people that you're working with, about the art that you're making, about the world through the art that you're making?
2: The things art can do in a community are best done when the community can interact face-to-face around the art. And Waterfall Arts has developed all kinds of programs for people who want to benefit from making art themselves and seeing the art of others, but those programs all depend on being able to get together. And under normal circumstances, that's no problem at all, but everything changed in 2020 when the world fell under the isolating shadow of COVID-19.
6: You know, it's interesting because we're really just sort of coming out of the haze of COVID. And, and Waterfall pretty much shut down. We did a little bit of online programming, but the kind of art that we do and the kind of workshops that we put on, they weren't going to do well online.
2: The COVID era was tough on Waterfall Arts, like it was on a lot of organizations, on a lot of people, but they limped through. And as 2021 came on and vaccines became widely available and infection rates dropped and the world started to get back to some kind of normal, it seemed to Amy that Waterfall Arts needed some kind of event to bring people back together. And as Amy thought about that, a memory came to her. It was kind of a tough memory. In the family of a close friend in 2020, a son had died taken his own life, in fact. It was one of the many, many tragedies of the pandemic. And prior to his death, this young man had talked with his mom in the throes of feeling isolated, cut off from his fellow humans. And he told her about how he wished things were different, about how he wished there was some way he could connect in meaningful ways with the people he loved.
6: And he had said to his mom at one point, I just wish everybody could sit around a fire and tell stories. And it's just stayed in my mind. It's just been in my mind. And I thought, you know, is there a way? Like, I would love to be a part of that kind of a conversation and not a conversation where we're saying, like, let's sit down and talk about the hard things. But one where, where we're saying to each other, this is who I am. I
2: just wish everybody could sit around a fire and tell stories. That simple wish, the sincere words of a, family friend gave Amy the idea she was looking for. With the help of other Waterfall Arts community members, Amy instituted a program that would allow people to do just that, come and sit around a fire and tell stories. It seemed like a way to get people together, old friends and new friends, to provide support and camaraderie and communion between folks who had felt isolated for so long. Well, they called the idea Fireside Chats, an event title that has some history. In the dark days of the Depression, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, president of the United States, had engaged in a weekly radio chat with anyone in America who wanted to listen, which was pretty much everybody. Those radio broadcasts, full of straight talk and also full of courage and comfort for an America in an extended crisis, were famously called Fireside Chats. And on a cold Maine night in December, Waterfall Arts had its first Fireside Chats gathering. There was a fire pit and hot cocoa, and in a small community like Amy's, it was easy to
3: spot.
6: And then there were just random people who showed up because, oh, this is cool, what, what, let me check this out. Like, what? why is there a fire on the lawn of Waterfall Arts? You know, I met people that I haven't ever met before or seen before, so.
2: People who didn't even know what the event was were drawn to the atmosphere that Waterfall Arts had created.
6: I think everybody was so relieved that there was an event that they could get together and they felt like it was safe enough.
2: Once the people were gathered, it was time for the real magic to happen, the magic of storytelling. One person shared a story and then another and then another.
6: I think when you hear something that reminds you of something inside yourself, like maybe a memory that you hadn't even thought of in years. And by hearing somebody else's story, it it kind of poked, poked the bear or made you remember.
2: There's something special that happens when we hear stories from people around us that brings our own stories to light. Stories and memories that we perhaps hadn't thought of in months or even years.
6: And there were a few people I think who told stories they hadn't told before or didn't think they were going to tell.
2: The Fireside Chats event worked a lot of magic in that first December night. And Amy and her colleagues learned some things, too. They learned, for example, that the impulse to stand up and share a story with friends or strangers is kind of a still, small voice. You know how people say that public speaking is one of the primary fears that a lot of people have? Well, it's true. And the voice inside you telling you to be afraid can sometimes be a lot louder than the still small voice that reassures you that it's okay to share your story. And if there are any obstacles at all, you might just never share. Have you ever felt that way? Like you want to share something, but then you wind up not sharing because of some tiny thing. Someone else in the group says something or the timer on the microwave goes off or somebody sneezes and amid the sneeze and the bless you, the moment passes and you don't Share, after all. It's happened to me, for sure. And at this Fireside Chats event, all people had to do to share a story was stand up at the microphone that Waterfall Arts had placed on a stand near the fire. That was it. But when it comes to sharing stories from your heart, that little obstacle, the obstacle of standing up and stepping up to a microphone, well, it's a little thing, but it was too much. And some people who might have shared... Didn't. So Amy made a tiny little adjustment to the second Fireside Chats event, the one in January.
6: And then the second month, I said, I think it would be better if we just stayed sitting. We can pass it around the circle and stay in a circle instead of asking somebody to sort of get up, because I think that led to a little bit of stage fright. And we kept the mic in the circle, and more stories were told. And People felt a lot less intimidated to tell their story.
0: Well,
2: that small act made all the difference. And I like that part of the story because it says two things. First, while sharing from your heart is important and useful and healing and unifying, it's also hard and a tiny thing can kind of scare it off. That's important to remember. And second... Amy was sensitive to that, and in her mind was the idea, how can we make sharing even easier here? How can we make this an even safer place? And in answering that question, no idea was too small, and what do you know? It worked. At the second event, the one in January, everybody shared. And even though some people in the circle didn't even know each other very well, it got pretty close, pretty vulnerable.
6: We've seen the range of emotions, right? I mean, I think that's the humanity of it, right? Where somebody is telling a story and sort of well, welled up with tears. And then I felt the rest of us, you know, kind of get teary with them. So there, there, there's that range of emotion that you're seeing and that's what makes us so human and what connects us to each other.
2: Experiencing that range of emotions with one another, hearing and accepting each story as it's told, laughing and weeping together as part of the healing balm that brings a community out of a difficult era, that's the gift that Fireside Chats has given to the community surrounding Waterfall Arts. And it's changed everybody. It's changed Amy, too. And she reflects on the experience and what it has helped her to feel and to become.
6: But what I will say is there's a way that maybe there's been a shift in how often I am vulnerable, maybe. And I think that is an important piece that's happened maybe because of fireside chats. like The impulse to be vulnerable more often, because I've seen how it can work in one arena and to be tender with another person. You know, I think that's the way that we can connect with somebody else. And if we can make our feelings known, then we can express our ideas more clearly. And um, it's not even so much about getting along. It's just about like being known to someone else.
2: Storytelling can shape us when we tell stories and when we hear them too. And the things we can learn from other people when we share stories with them, are things that can bring lasting change. So build a fire of your own. Make a welcome space for people who are like you and for people who are unlike you too. Keep the mic where folks can reach it and with a tip of the hat to folks like Amy Tingle, people who have road tested the notion that storytelling can do some of the heavy lifting in a community that needs to find a way to understand and connect with each other. Go ahead and let the stories (music) Flow. Pleasure to bring you that story here on The Appleseed in an episode in which we're remembering some of the things we loved working on from season two of The Appleseed in preparation for a brief hiatus for the show in a couple of weeks and then for season three. We're really excited to bring you all kinds of great stuff in season three. But Heather, thanks for that memory from season two.
3: Yeah, for me, this story is all about Sort of what I feel charged to do. We talked about Vacation Bible School and we talked about learning in church. One of the things I feel like I learned in church, which I'm only just now getting good at, is listening to people's stories. Mm. Listening to people in their own words talk Mm. about their experience uh, and not coming with judgment and not coming with uh, preconceived notions. Um, and learning how to love them because of that. And this community is doing that in a very concrete way, which yeah. to me was incredibly moving when I heard about it.
4: Yeah. And during such a challenging time, uh, when when it was thought, we can't come together, we can't do things like this. Right. And, and just to see... Uh, You know, we're getting a little farther and farther away from the times of lockdown with COVID, you know, but, but looking back, I think that there's a great lesson there that it was just like human beings just need to connect with each other. And during times when we supposedly can't, we're still going to find a way (laughs) to be able to (laughs)
2: do that. Yeah. And the good that it did, I, I, I'm always uh, taken aback a little bit by, uh, by instances in which some high stakes task needs to be performed, some real heavy lifting and people looking at each other and saying, well, how do we do this important heavy lifting? How do we accomplish this task that we want to accomplish? And they come around to, well, how about we share stories? Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how about we share stories and turning to stories to do some of that heavy human lifting yeah know, is, uh, is it, 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 it always uh, it, it's always remarkable always a little miraculous to me
4: yeah well something that comes out of your mouth all the time on the show Sam is that we hope that the stories that we bring on the show will spark memories and have conversations and stuff and so uh, I think we just love when we see I- examples of that happening yeah you yeah. know And that it really does happen in the world. It's not just a thing that we say, and it really does bring people together. Right.
2: Yeah. Well, at the top of the hour, we heard a story called Vacation Bible School, recorded live in the Appleseed Studio. Bill Lepp, of course, the storyteller, the wonderful West Virginia tall tale teller. And then, of course, we shifted gears, talked a little bit about uh, Fireside Chats. It was a real pleasure to talk about that. We're sharing some of our favorite Appleseed moments today, and there's more coming up. I'm Sam Payne. Such a pleasure to be with you on this episode of The Appleseed, sharing some of our favorite Appleseed moments from the last little while. And we've heard already a great story from Bill Lepp called Vacation Bible School. And uh, then, of course, we had a conversation about Fireside Chats, a tradition started by a town to keep people connected during a difficult time. And uh, now we're going to go somewhere else. You know, we're, we're, we're pursuing some of Heather's uh, Appleseed memories today, Heather. Uh, where are we going now?
3: We are going to listen to a readers theater adaptation of Alice Through the Looking Glass, which Brian happens to be sitting right here is the one who at- adapted. I Adap- know adapted? adapted. I
4: was I was very flattered that you chose this one, so thank you very much. Yeah.
3: <laughs> well, um, first of all, Lewis Carroll, a classic of children's literature, and the story you told about. Um, your relationship with your wife, I thought, was really touching.
6: I liked oh, it.
2: You. And, of course, we should be clear. You're not going to hear the whole thing. Of, no. Of Alice. No, no, The no. looking glass, right? Yeah.
4: But a moment. Right, a mm-hmm. uh, 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 kind of a cool m- moment. Interwoven with my wife and I having our meet cute <laughs> <laughs> in the rom com right. that is Brian Tanner's life. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so here it
2: is again, recorded live in the Appleseed Studio. A group of actors performing a readers theater adaptation of just a moment from Alice Through the Looking Glass. <laughs>
4: As children, we learn that the world is made up of rules and those rules are taught to us by authority figures. And they make sense, usually. (laughs) But what if a rule doesn't make sense to you? For example, you learn in school that when you're dividing fractions, you invert the second fraction and then you multiply them. But why do you invert them? That was something that I always wondered. I guess I just thought to myself, well, that's the rule. (laughs) To be honest, I don't know if it ever occurred to me that I could just raise my hand and ask for an explanation. I just accepted that it was true because that's what my teacher said. But when I got a little bit older, I read about a girl who had encountered situations that were even more nonsensical than that. And she was not afraid to speak up when she did not understand the rules.
7: The rule is jam every other day. Well, I don't care for jam. It's very good jam. Well, I don't want any today at any rate. You couldn't have it if you did want it. The rule is jam tomorrow and jam yesterday. Never jam today. But it must come sometimes to jam today. No, it can't. It's jam every other day. Today isn't any other day, you know.
0: Well, I don't understand you. It's dreadfully confusing. There's a mistake in there somewhere.
4: <laughs> so that dreadfully confusing exchange is between Alice and the White Queen from the book Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll. It's the sequel to Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and together they were my favorite books when I was young. In them, I met an ordinary child from a world that was not that different than mine, which was full of authority figures and rules. But unlike me, Alice left her ordinary world and entered a fantasy world that was also full of authority figures and rules, but the rules there were clearly, well, to borrow a word from the Cheshire cat, mad. <laughs> in the first book, Alice famously follows the white rabbit down a rabbit hole and into Wonderland. But in Through the Looking Glass, Alice bypasses the rabbit hole, and instead, she passes through a mirror, or a looking glass, you might say, if you lived in Victorian England, And once she arrives in the Looking Glass world, Alice immediately notices that the countryside is laid out in a very curious way.
0: I declare, it's marked out just like a large (laughs) chessboard. Well, there ought to be some men moving about somewhere, (gasps) and so there are. It's a great huge game of chess that's being played all over the world. Oh, what fun it is. How I wish I was one of them. I wouldn't mind being a pawn if only I might join. Though,
1: of course, I should like to be a queen best.
4: Her request was granted by none other than the Red Queen herself.
1: That's easily managed. You can be the White Queen's pawn if you'd like. You're in the second square to begin with, and when you get to the eighth square, we shall be queens together. It's all feasting and fun.
4: So, Alice heads off across the chessboard land on a quest to become a queen. And along the way, she has run-ins with the likes of Tweedledee and Tweedledum and Humpty Dumpty and a lion and a unicorn who battle each other for a crown. Those episodes are all a great deal of fun. I encourage you guys to go out and read the whole story of Through the Looking Glass. But for now, let's go ahead and skip to the moment when Alice arrives at the eighth square and she undergoes an immediate transformation.
0: What is this on my head? A golden crown? But how can it have gotten there without my knowing it? Well, this is grand. I never expected I should be a queen so soon. And if I really am a queen, I shall be able to manage it quite well in time.
4: But if Alice thought that becoming a queen would mean that she'd understand the rules all of a sudden, well, she would soon find out that it wouldn't be that simple. Little did she know she was about to be given the final exam on looking glass logic.
1: Please would you tell me speak when you're spoken to Ooh. But if everybody obeyed that rule, and you only spoke when
0: you were spoken to, and if the other person always waited for you to begin, well, you see
6: that
1: nobody would ever say anything, so that Ridiculous! Now, child, what right have you to call yourself a queen? You can't be a queen, you know, till you've passed
7: the proper examination. And the sooner we begin it, the better. Can you do addition? What's one and 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 one? Well, I don't know. I lost count. She can't do addition. Uh, Can you do subtraction? Take nine from eight. Nine from eight? Well, I can't, you know. (laughs) She can't do subtraction. Can you do division? Divide a loaf by a knife. What's the answer to that? Well, I suppose... Bread and butter, of course. (laughs) Try another subtraction
1: sum. Take a bone from a dog. What remains? Hmm... Well, the bone wouldn't remain, of course, if I took it. And the dog wouldn't remain. it would come to bite me, and I'm sure that I shouldn't remain. Then you think nothing would remain? I think that's the answer. Wrong as usual. The dog's temper would remain. But I don't see how... How Why look here. The dog would lose its temper, wouldn't it? Perhaps it would. Then, if the dog went away, its temper would remain. (laughs) They might go different ways.
7: Oh, what dreadful nonsense we are talking. She can't do sums a bit. Can you do sums? <gasps> I can do addition if you give me time, but I can't do subtraction under any circumstances. Of course. You know your B, C. To be sure I do. So do I. We'll often say it over together, dear, and I'll tell you a secret. I can read words of one letter. (laughs) Isn't that grand? However, don't be discouraged. You'll come to it in time. Can you answer useful questions? How is bread made? I know that. You take some flour... Where do you pick the flower? In a garden or in the hedges? Oh, well, it isn't picked at all. It's ground. How many <laughs> acres of ground? You mustn't leave out so many things. Oh, that's, fan her head. She'll be feverish after so much thinking.
1: Oh, so oh poor dear. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh, she's all right again now. Do you know languages? What's the French for fiddle-dee-dee? <laughs> Fiddle-dee-dee's not English. Whoever said it was. Well, if you'll tell me what language fiddle-dee-dee is, I'll tell you the French for it. Queens never make bargains.
7: I wish queens never asked questions. Oh, don't let us quarrel. Um oh, what is the cause of lightning? The cause of lightning is thunder. Oh, no,
1: no, I I meant it the other way. It's too late to correct it. Once you've said a thing,
7: that fixes it, and you must take the consequences. it reminds me, we had such a thunderstorm last Tuesday. I mean, one of the last set of Tuesdays, you know. In our country, there's only one day at a time. Oh,
1: that's a poor, thin way of doing things. Now here, we mostly have days and nights, two or three at a time. And sometimes in the winter, we take as many as five nights together for warmth, you know. Are five nights warmer than one night, then? Five times as warm, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but they should be five times as cold by the same rule. Just so. Five times as warm and five times as cold just as I'm five times as rich as you are and five times as clever (sighs) it's exactly like a riddle with no answer I am so sleepy. Oh, she's tired, poor thing. Smooth her hair, lend her your nightcap, and sing her a soothing lullaby. I haven't got a nightcap with me, and I don't know any soothing lullaby. Ugh, I must do it myself then. (laughs) Hush by, lady, in Alice's lap. Till the feast's ready, we've time for a nap. When the feast's over, we'll go to the ball. Red Queen and White Queen and Alice and all. And now you know the words. J- just sing it through to me. I'm getting sleepy too.
4: And just like that, the two queens fell asleep with their heads in Alice's lap, snoring loudly. <laughs> As a child, I adored all of Alice's ridiculous interactions. But looking back, I think that I got more out of these books than just silliness for the sake of silliness. By cranking up the absurdity of the Wonderland rules, I think there's an invitation to think more deeply about the rules that we're given. Are they just arbitrary? Or is there some logic behind them that we can discover if we ask? In this way, I believe that the Alice stories helped me develop into a more critical thinker. And that trait has followed me into adulthood. And it's perhaps even influenced some of my most important life choices. For instance, as a young adult, I went to a talent show where most of the people were doing conventional talent show acts like singing and dancing. But there was one act that really stood out to me. It was a short presentation by a woman standing at a blackboard. She was a math teacher, and so for her talent, she walked the audience through the logic behind the invert and multiply rule for dividing fractions. (laughs) Uh Aha, I thought. So that's why it works. And in just a few minutes, she had made sense out of a rule that had previously seemed nonsensical to me. Well, she may not have won the talent show, but she did make me think... I gotta go get to know that girl. (laughs) A few years later, we were married, and I still love it when she unravels the mysteries around algebra or geometry for me. And I should say, she's sitting right over there. (laughs) So the next time you're puzzling over fractions, or why you can't have jam today, or some other rule that makes you think to yourself...
0: It's exactly like a riddle with no answer.
4: Take a cue from Alice and ask somebody...
0: Why?
2: Just a portion of Alice Through the Looking Glass. And as a bonus, just a little bit of connective tissue between that story and personal memories of Brian's, memories of uh, of meeting and falling in love with his wife.
4: Brian, that was really fun to hear. Well, well thank you. That no, was really fun to put together. And it was really fun to bring some actors in yeah. before a live studio audience to bring it to life. It's a fun way to tell stories. And it should be noted uh, that... The role of Alice was played by Ellie Mellon. The role of the Red Queen was Darcy Ramirez. And the White Queen was Freya Jorgensen.
2: Yeah. Those guys were so great. In this era, when we're kind of looking back on some of our favorite Appleseed moments from the last little while, that's a favorite of yours.
3: Yeah. I love this. I mean, I think Lewis Carroll and his work with Alice is really fundamental to childhood literature. Yeah. And I think it captures the experience so many of us have of going into a strange place and then having to find our bearings and it's not fun uh (laughs) she's you know weirded out for much of her adventure um and then she comes safely out of it but having gained wisdom and i think that's childhood, right?
4: Yeah. Heather, thanks for bringing that
3: story to us. Thanks, Brian, for writing it. <laughs> well,
4: well, thank you for choosing well, it. Well, those portions of it that Lewis Carroll didn't yes. write. Yeah, I have to admit. A <laughs> <laughs> oh, heck of a lot of it was that's written Mr. Right. <laughs> carroll <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> A pleasure to experience that little Reader's Theater
2: adventure. And, of course, again, we're going to take a quick break in a few weeks. We're going to spend a few weeks uh, remembering some of our favorite moments from season two. Uh, and then it's season three coming up in just a little bit on the Appleseed. And we're going to be really, really excited to bring you some of the stuff that we've uh, got prepared for season three. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Sam Bain.